Week three of our series, Hope is Here. Um, some of you might be aware of this. Some of you don't. My past life, I, I was something before I was a pastor. I didn't come out of the womb as a pastor. Um, in fact, as a 16-year-old God, I felt God called me to be pastor, and I unequivocally said, whatever that word is, I, I said no. <laughs> Not happening. Um, 20 years later, it took 20 years for me to, to say yes, I that little background there. Um, but I was a school teacher. And my first teaching position, a uh, full-time position, was uh, teaching what was, what's called an at-risk class. Um, every year they would give me 15 eighth graders that the eighth grade counselors figured, like they hadn't passed any classes their eighth grade year, all, all, all of them. Um, but they figured with a little bit of one-on-one, -on -one, they, they, would, they would select, <laughs> this is a horrible phrase, the best of the worst, the, the 15 best of the worst and, and, and they gave them to me. <laughs> they said, here you go there, coach. Um, and, and I was told by one of the vice principals, there were two vice principals to hire me, they said, if one out of 15, out of every semester you get 15 kids, if one of them makes it to graduation, you can consider yourself a success. I thought, wow, low bar. <laughs> yeah, I can make that bar. Well, it was a chore. I mean, boy, it was some years. It was tough. They, they, they weren't making it to graduation. Um, and, and, and so I had a whole bunch of pictures in my classroom. And one day the vice principal comes in, he's chatting with me, and, he's, and he, he notices all the pictures. And he says, do you talk about your family with the kids? And, all, and, and in the back of my mind, it's like, oh, crud, maybe I'm not supposed to be doing that. I said, well, I might as well be honest with him because, you know, I'm a Christian. So I said, yeah, you know, th this is my family. He says, so do you talk about them? Yeah. You need to talk about them more. What? You need to talk about them constantly. These kids, they don't have any experience, right? They, they hear rumors about a healthy life and a whole life and, and life without hate and, and pain. And they hear rumors, but they've never experienced it. They only know one way. When they go home, they only know one way to deal with conflict. They only know, I mean, they can, again, they can go to friends' houses and see other things, but they, they experience day in and day out a certain lifestyle. And it's a brutal, it's a brutal lifestyle. And so he's basically telling me, tell personal stories of your kids. Talk, talk about your life, your family, the way you handle conflict, the way you and your wife argue, the way you, you resolve. I mean, talk about all that stuff. Talk about, don't even talk about math. I don't care about math. They need hope. <laughs> Once they have hope, all these other things that can fall into place, but these kids have lost hope. Their parents have lost hope in them. The school district has lost hope in them. They don't see themselves as valuable at all. And my principal, he, he knew that I, would, I, I was treating them well, you know, with love and respect and, and so forth, but they had to see, they had to see, they had to see it, and they had to have firsthand personal testimony to believe that another way was possible. Here's what they experienced at home. This, this is what I, when I would go see their houses and I would meet their families, and, and not all the time, and maybe it, maybe it was really pretty, but un, just underneath the surface, it was like this, right? Everything looked good, but you knew it was ugly. It was a facade. Um, and, my, and, and, I, I, and I begin to ask questions. Well, you know, what keeps broken people so defeated? Why can't they lift themselves up? Why can't they improve their situation? All around, they see people improving their situation, but somehow they don't. And they just remain in these broken situations. I kept asking, you know, how do people, why do people abuse themselves? Why do they people allow other people to abuse them? Why don't they at least keep up their own personal hygiene? 
And I began to ask questions, and, and, I, and I got some answers. Here's what I found. For many of these kids, for their entire experience, and remember, experience is knowledge, right? What you experience is what you know. For their entire experience, only things of value, things that are loved are well-treated and cared for. But things that aren't loved, that aren't valued, aren't treated well. They're ill-treated, and they're, they're abused. They're neglected. And this is the way they saw themselves. Nobody ever saw value in them, so they didn't see value in themselves. Right? Why do you clean up something that's trash, that's pointless? My, again, my vice principal knew I was treating them with love and respect, but equally important right, was that they be able to see and experience firsthand, firsthand testimony that it was possible. A person who's broken, they're unable to see the way out of their brokenness, unable to even imagine someday seeing the way out. So I, I am suggesting to you all that similar to my role as a teacher, as a school teacher, um, we, the church, we've got to embrace our call to provide evidence of God's love to a world out there who doesn't believe that love exists. In their experience, there's only hate and abuse and neglect. They hear rumors, but they've never experienced it or seen it themselves firsthand, right, in, in a friend that they could, they, they could connect the dots with. Only that would provide a hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. And it's got to be a special kind of hope, right? It can't be a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope where, you know, I hope Douglas brought this out. I remembered it from a, a video a couple weeks ago. He said, the world has this idea of hope kind of like, um, I hope there won't be any homework this week or this year, but I know there will be. So it's, that's really not hope. That, 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 that's, not, that's not a biblical hope at all. And if your definition of God falls under that definition, where well, you're going to have problems. Yeah, he's a good God, but, but not really. <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense. And it's not a delusional hope either. It can't be a delusional hope like running into a, like a World War I machine gun firing line and believing that bullets can't touch you, right? <laughs> we have this idea that, that God's looking for martyrs. Like to go in and die for the cause. But the fact of the matter is, when I read Romans, I, I, I read that he wants living sacrifices. He's not actually looking for martyrs, right? Those happen naturally, right? Nobody needs to sign up to be a martyr. D don't. He needs you living. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. Now, I understand there are some places in the world and situations in the world where people do give up their lives. But that's not what Christ is looking for. That's not the front line of the movement, it's living sacrifices. It's us, the living, that are going to give glory to God. So back in the time of King Saul, God called on a very young future King David to provide just such a hope, not a delusional hope and not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but a real hope to an Israeli, Israelite army that had run out of hope. I'm going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched their tents at Ephes Damon um, between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Verse 3, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. And here's what would happen every day. One army on this hill, one army on this hill, the valley in between. 
Um, each morning from the Philistine camp would, be, would come this big, big giant guy. Let me read. This is verse 4. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath is one of the big cities of the, 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 the Palestine territory, um, Palestinian territory. His height was six cubits and a span. That's about nine and a half feet, right? Here's what David and the Goliath might look like in a New York City lineup, maybe about 3 a.m., right? You see these kind of pictures in New York City. This is what, this is what they might look like. Um, one guy rather tall and scary looking, and the other guy not properly dressed. Um, now, now, you look at these heights and you think, nah, this is a myth. This, this can't be true. This, this can't be true. But let me show you a picture of a guy named Robert Wadlow, 8 foot 11. He was just about six inches shorter than Goliath. Um, he had pituitary giantism. Hopefully I said that right. Doctors examined Robert and realized that his exceptional size was caused by hyperplasia of his pituitary gland. This condition causes an abnormally high level of human growth hormone, and he was never given any treatment to stop it. He was still growing when he died in his 20s, just uncontrolled growth. So it's easy to, there are situations, there are, there, there, it is knowledgeable around the world that a guy can be nine and a half feet tall, right? It's not, not a myth. And again, in case anybody believes that it's all a myth, I, I came across this story. Um, hit that next slide there. Um, in Biblical Archaeological Review, a few years back, they found some of these funeral boxes, right? The idea is that they would put the, a body in a cave until it was completely dry, and then they would take it out, and they would put them in the bones in these, these ossuaries. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. And, and that's where they, they would rest. Well, they found a whole bunch of these, and a whole bunch of them had Israelite names, but one set of boxes had the word Goliath on it, right? So if you were an Israelite, you didn't have the last name of Goliath, right? That's just not something that you would do. You would have an Israel name. So the, 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 the archaeologists were quite fascinated. They were, they were like, what, what is going on? What is this clearly a, a, a Philistine family name in the midst of a whole bunch of Israelite family boxes? And what they found out as they, as they dug into it, and it really was an Israelite family, but Goliath was their family nickname, right? Goliath was such a real person in Israelites' history that this one particular Israelite family, years later, they all had some kind of issue. They were all really tall, and they became known as the Goliath family, right? So the Israelites, they, they, they were actually working from a real event, and their lives reflected that real event, right? The nickname Goliath. For, anyway, that was just a total, total side thing. Continuing verses 5 and 6, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing about 5,000 shekels. You're like, wow, what's that? It's about 125 pounds, right? Some of you smaller adults, it's about what you weigh. I'm, I'm going to say that so carefully. Um, on his legs, he wore bronze uh, somethings, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. It was a throwing weapon. Uh, verse 7, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. So consider basically a six-foot fence rail. Okay? That's, that's his spear. And again, it's not a throwing weapon. It, it's an it's a in-close weapon. It, it's a stabbing weapon, as I'm going to show you in just a minute. Um, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, or about 15 pounds. So he's walking around with this big, giant fence rail with like a bowling ball on the end of it. Now, any of us would pick it up, and we'd be going, whoa, right? And this is just like this massive, massive, heavy, heavy thing. Um, his shield bearer went in front of him. So you had this... this military idea of the, the front row with shields, and then the guy right behind them reaching over the top of him and just wreaking havoc, but nothing getting him because his shield bearer is right in front of him. This is kind of the way they did battle. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of the Israelites, 
Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me, and if he is able to fight and kill me, well, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Now, this was, this was called the Battle of Champions, right? It was a common form of battle. Um, the idea, kind of two ideas going on here. Number one, it would be not an actual fight between the two men, but between the two gods, right? So Yahweh versus Dagon, right, the god of the, the Philistines. That's really who was out there on the battlefield. It wasn't Goliath and another Israelite soldier. And in everybody's eyes, it was the two gods inhabiting the bodies of these two champions. The second thing that was on everybody's mind is this was a lot less deadly, right? The armies weren't like today where you had hundreds of thousands of men. I mean, there might have been only 30, 40 men, and battles were incredibly destructive. And in this way, only one or two people would die. And you, so there were several reasons for this ceremonial kind of battle, and, and it really was a, a common thing. Um, let me keep reading. Uh, verse 10, then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Again, two lines of thought now going on in Saul's head. Number one, um, Yahweh's got to be stronger than Dagon. I, I just know it. That's kind of, kind of on his mind, and so that's at one level. I mean, it's about the gods, but at another completely different level, verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. On the other hand, he's thinking, oh, my goodness, that guy's huge. He's going to kill my guy. This is, I mean, he's thinking, yes, it's all about the gods, but oh, my, look at him. I think my God's going to lose. And so Saul is just terrified. He, he won't even come out of his tent. Every day, the soldiers, they look to their king, this really, really tall king who had always been there before, and they see him cowering in his tent, and what do they do, right? The people follow their leaders. If their leaders are strong and courageous, they take that on. If their leaders are weak and frightened, they're weak and they're frightened. This has been going on day after day after day for weeks. The Israelite army was a broken and defeated army, as was their king. They needed someone to prove to them, to show them that God was still faithful, that it was actually doable, that this situation that seems hopeless was actually not, not hopeless. Importantly, again, they needed a hope that wasn't a pie-in-the-sky hope, and it wasn't a delusional hope. It had to be a real hope that they could go, yeah, we can do that. Enter a very young future King David. And again, super important to keep in mind here. David also needed an example. Well, kind of just let that sink into your head. He's about to do something, and it's not going to be the first time he's done it. This is not a situation of a young boy coming up and seeing a giant and thinking, yeah, I think I'll throw a rock at him. And because I love God and God loves me, um, it'll succeed. I see a lot of Christians, and that's their plan, right? And, and, and uh, to do whatever it is, and I think... Let's think that through a little bit more, right? Because you've kind of got a pie-in-the-sky delusional hope going on here. Let's, 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 let's put some feet and hands onto this plan and make it a reality, right? Let's, let's deal with, with re reality here. Um, so David needs an example, something or someone who could give him hope and the courage to fight Goliath. And it wasn't going to be King Saul. Listen to this, verse 33. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. Be gone, kind of like, you know. He's been a warrior since he was a little kid. 
you're still a little kid. And then David reveals a kind of a two-part source, and, and this I want to really us to zero in on. He's kind of got a two-part, two steps, I don't know what we want to call it, um, to his source and, and his courage, right? Here it is, verse 34, 35. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, and I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Now, I'm guessing at this point he did not walk up to a bear or a lion and said, bring it on in some kind of Davy Crockett wrestling match, right? I don't, I don't see that happening. It doesn't say it, but my guess is he's really good with that sling. I'm going to talk about that sling in just a little bit, but ancient shepherds, ancient warriors, um, good in the sling, it was a devastating weapon. I mean, I've read reports of Palestinian youth, 30 yards can hit a rabbit, bam, boom. And if this kid has hit a bear, dropped it to the point where he could come up and kill it, right? Verse 35, when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it, stunned it, something. I, that's what I see happening. I don't, again, I don't see him wrestling a bear, you know, and killing it. Um, he was skilled. He had a skill, a certain skill set. Let me continue. 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So part one of David's hope, check this out. Part one of David's hope was this God-given and proven ability, right? And I'll do the same with Goliath. Right? I've been developing this skill, and God has used this skill to help me protect my father's sheep. This isn't separate from God. This isn't a secular tool. God is using everything at David's disposal to do, to help David do what he's been called to do, take care of his father's sheep. And so he's got, he's got that sling, and he's really, really, really good at it. Part two of David's help is God was with me then, and God will be with me again. He's given me this skill. I'm really good at it. He's been with me in hairy situations before. I, I, can, I, can, I can nail that Goliath dude at 20 paces. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Nothing, nothing to it. And again, once again, Saul is dismissive of David. He's not recognizing the source of David's hope. He's not recognizing that God doesn't always work through the obvious, the apparent human strengths. He tends to make his power shown and displayed through a lot of times weak and apparently foolish, at least foolish in the eyes of the world, he, he likes to work that way because if he worked through the powerful people, then people would go, oh, powerful people did all this stuff. But when he works through weak people, people will go, well, that can't be. That weak person couldn't have done that. Had to have been God, right? That's just the way he likes to work. So if you're thinking you're an underdog, God loves you, <laughs> he's, and he's going to use you, right? He wants to use you. So embrace it because you're not an underdog. Continuing in verse, verse 38, it says this, Then Saul dressed David up in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet, bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. Verse 39, I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them, so he took them off. Now, this is incredibly, incredibly encouraging. I don't know how many times I've done this. I know I've done this, and I, my guess is many of you have done that. Like, I wish I could be like Bill. He's such a Bible scholar. I wish I had his skills. Or I wish I was like Kathy. 
right? She shares Jesus with everybody she meets, and, and, and I'm so shy. I, ju- I just can't do that. I mean, I'm such an underdog. I'm such an underdog. But in this passage, right, all of us sometimes feel like we don't measure up to others. Sometimes we feel the weight of other people's expectations, but God made every one of us different, and he equips each one of us to do what he calls each one of us to do. And you may think, well, I need this weapon, I need that, I need this money, or I need that building, or I need this leader, I, I, whatever, whatever. God's like, well, you need me first and foremost, and I'll bring what you need around you, but it's probably not what you thought. But you need me first. That, that's the first thing. By knowing and accepting who God created us to be, we can shed these expectations that people have about us. Well, Pastor Jerry, you should be preaching like this. Well, that's not the way God made me, so you can do that. You're allowed to do that. Do it nicely with a smile. Like David, God can use us in mighty, mighty ways. And many of you know what happened next, or at least you think you know what happened next. Check this out. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached Goliath. Now, the way I understood this story, I don't know about you, David was the underdog, and God miraculously empowers him, and David kills a giant. And the application is God will miraculously empower you to do superhuman feats. You'll be able to go in and run into traffic, and cars won't hit you. You know, you'll be able to go in, and there's a huge social issue. You'll step right on in and fix it, whippity-whap, right, just like that. No issues, no problems. How many of you have experienced that? Yeah. When we go in and, and tackle something, a brokenness in the world, a lot of us go in thinking, God's going to supernaturally, and I'm going to walk in, and by 5 o'clock, I will have brought world peace And at the end of the day, you want to quit and you want to hate everybody in the world. Nobody has responded to the love that you have and nobody's cooperating. And you're like, anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, I see heads shaking all over the place. Yeah, yeah. That's really not the case. Let me me explain. First of all, again, I, I kind of alluded to this. David's sling is a devastated weapon. One of the most feared weapons of the ancient world. The sling, the bullet that comes out of those slings is the equivalent of a 45 caliber bullet. This, this has been studied. They, they've, they've done this. I looked into this. Um, it's a serious weapon. Right, so you got this big lumbering guy weighed down with all this armor up against a kid running at him with the world, the ancient world's equivalent of a 45 caliber handgun. Right? It, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. You don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. You bring a gun to a gunfight. Goliath brought the wrong weapons. He was the underdog. And the writers, the biblical writers are trying to say to us, look, he thought he had the world's power and therefore he was going to win this battle, but David had God's power, a sling. It wasn't, it's a weapon, yes, but it's not the recognizable weapon of the world, swords, spears. God was making a point in this. This is the story of how God was allowed to use an obedient young shepherd boy with ninja-like stone-slinging skill sets to show and demonstrate his unique power to a broken and defeated Israelite army that was in desperate need of hope. This is what this is a story. It's not really a story about an underdog because David wasn't an underdog, and he knew it. And again, it wasn't just any kind of hope. It wasn't a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope, and it wasn't a delusional kind of hope. Right? 
A pie in the sky kind of hope, like, sure, hope I can hit him, but I probably won't. But hey, martyr's death. Whoo, my family will, you know, this will be great for my family. I'll die, but yeah, that's the way it goes. That's kind of the pie in the sky kind of hope that Douglas was talking about. I hope it doesn't work, it doesn't happen, but it probably will. And neither was it a delusional, like I'm going to open up this can of spinach and suddenly my forearms are going to get grotesquely big and I'm going to, I'm going to whoop, I'm going to, right? We, we kind of think like that. I'm going to pray and, and I'm going to whoop. Yeah, it doesn't work out that way. You walk away bloodied and beaten. Not at all. They were based on a hope that was embedded on the firm foundation of God's past faithfulness to David. It's like God has never failed me yet. With the skill sets that he's given me and the dangers that have come my way, this is no different. I have no doubt. I've been down this road. I've been on this rodeo, right? Not a problem. David's not even worried. Now, here's the best part of the story. The rest of the story and then the best part of the story. You're going to have to go home and read this. There's an epic round of trash talk, right? If you like trash talk, you know, NBA, NFL, uh, the middle of chapter 17, the Philistine, Goliath, and David are just... You know, they don't talk about each other's mothers, but they come close, right? They're just, just trash-talking each other. Um, it says this. I'm going to jump into verse 47. All those gathered here will know. This is David. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or by the spear, and this is what I've been driving at, the, the weapons of the world, the, the weapons that the world expects us to use and win with, we don't need. We, we don't need because they're destructive. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Right? God doesn't rely on the weapons and the powers of this world. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might or power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. Hosea 1, 7, yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by the bow or the sword or battle or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, will save them. I won't use the weapons of the world, though, because then people said, oh, it was the weapons of the world. And who? God who? What did he have to do with this? Again, we might think that we're the underdog or we're ill-equipped or whatever, but God doesn't fight with the weapons and tools that we think we need to win the day. Right? We think we've got to have the big bank account. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. We've got to have all this lined up and... God's like, yeah, those things are important, but unless you got me first, those, those will fail you. They will fail you. Again, this theme is picked up in verses 48 through 50, this idea that God doesn't use, doesn't need to use the weapons of the world. 48, 49 says, as the, Philistines moved, as the Philistine, Goliath, moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. The writer's saying something here. He's screaming at us. We don't need the weapons of the world. We need love. We need the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the weapons that we fight with. Yes, money is important and it comes in handy. I totally get that. And, and this building, it's a wonderful thing. You love it, love it. But it's not by these things that we win. We win by the power of the Spirit. God simply needed the obedience of a young shepherd boy who had a rich relational history with God. That's who he needed and that's who he got and that's who responded. Willing to put it all on the line so the people could see God at work on their behalf and they could come to believe he does still love us. He is still faithful. 
We do have a hope. And here's the best part. When the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. People needed an example. They, just, they needed to see that it was possible. I, a lot of you, I, I'm that way, and I, I won't believe something is possible, and I, and I used to, that's what I used to use my little, little brother for. Robbie, you try this. And if Robbie lived, I'll, I'll try it. Robbie was good, good about that kind of thing. He was younger. <laughs> Another story entirely. They needed to see God doing something in somebody else's life that they needed him to do in their life. Again, the corollary truth here. Let me just throw this in very quickly. If the people of Richland see the church, the Richland Church of the Nazarene, involved in their lives, they're going to have hope. But if they see the church of the Nazarene or churches in general turning and running, like in this passage, they're going to lose hope and run too. We're the leaders in this passage. It's not, not the pastors, it's the church. We're the leaders in this story. One of the key themes in the book of John was seeing and believing. Right? If people see God do something in somebody else's life that they want him to do in theirs, then they will be more likely to believe. They will be more likely to trust. They'll be more likely to begin to obey because they can see that the results are good. I hear in the news all the time, people don't want to get the vaccine because they want to see if it works in other people. I get it. What's going on here? Now, before we share communion this morning, I'd like to close with the words of Paul, summing, kind of summing up my message rather nicely. This is in Ephesians chapter 6, starting verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's the whole story of Goliath and David. David relied on God's power. He didn't rely on the armor, the weapons of this world. He, he relied on what God gave him. He relied on who he was, and that was enough. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, later in this passage, Paul talks about some of the pieces of armor. We're all well aware he makes a short little list, but that's not the full army of God, armor of God, right? He mentions what? The, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of spirit, which is the word of the God, word of God. I mean, all those things are part of the armor of God. But if you read all of Paul's letters, there's three more that we're missing here that, well, Paul's kind of got a thought going here. Um, all, not all his lists are exhaustive. You recognize that. And this list is certainly not exhaustive because we certainly have, what do we have? We have the power of the body of Christ. He doesn't even mention that. We have the body. That's a very, very powerful part of the armor of God, right? We have the cloud of witnesses, and we have the work of the Holy Spirit. That's all part of the armor of God, too. It's not just those private private things. Let me keep reading. Verse 12 says this, for our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are the kind of powers that we need to be fighting with, and, and a gun doesn't do, a, a, even a 45 won't do anything with this. Because we confuse the weapons of this world with the weapons of heaven, we tend to discount folks like David, and people tended to discount Jesus. And even in our world today, people are tending to discount the church. 
They're just like, nah, washed up, done, outmatched. All three appear for all intents and purposes to be lost causes. David, Jesus on Good Friday, lost cause. That's what they thought. The church, people today are thinking the church is done. But we're not. We're not. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand firm. So the folks in your neighborhood, they need to see God doing something in your life that they'd like to believe that God can do in their life, but they don't think he can until he sees it in your life. And when that happens, when believers put on the full armor of God, here's what happens. I'm going I'm to read this same exact verse, hit that next slide, and I've changed some pronouns. I've changed from you to your neighbor and I'm going to read this, and I'd like you to read it silently in your heart and your mind, and I want you to see your neighbors. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, <clears throat> so that when the day of evil comes, they, our neighbors, because of what we've done, they'll be able to stand their ground, and after they've done everything, they'll be able to stand at the end of the day based on what they saw in you based on the evidence that you gave them that God is good and God is faithful and God hears them and they're not underdogs. In fact, they are more than conquerors. We can't claim ignorance, right? We know the stories. We've seen and heard the testimony. We know our hope isn't a pie in the sky or a delusional hope, right? It's a hope firmly grounded in the fulfilled promises of God in Jesus Christ. So as we prepare to celebrate communion, Dan's going to come up. We celebrate. Like Doug said, people do it differently. We celebrate every month. We celebrate what we've seen and experienced in Jesus Christ. Because here's the fact. Experiencing real hope in the face of real hardships and brokenness is difficult, if not impossible, without having seen somebody overcome similar circumstances, and that's what gives us hope. Well, if Joey can do it, I can do it. If Joanne can do it, well, I can do it. Right? We kind of get that idea going. Again, sometimes people simply need a demonstration to believe the words. We're celebrating exactly such a demonstration this morning as we share communion. This was God saying, you're not underdogs. You're not underdogs. You're more than conquerors. And I'm going to show you how serious I am. I'm going to give the life of my son for you. My son will be broken. That's the weapon I'm using. And my son will bleed out. That's the weapon I'm going to use to reach this world. And that's the weapon I want you all to use too, love and grace and forgiveness. And even our own brokenness. Are we willing to be broken, not martyred necessarily, but are we willing to be broken for somebody around us, for a neighbor? God was. 
through his son, and we're called to be Christ-like. Father, thank you so much for the ultimate example, the ultimate demonstration that everybody could see and believe. Father, you weren't just about words. You, you had to show us this is what love is. It's not a bunch of words. It's not all pray for you. It's all, I, I'm willing to be broken for you. This is how valuable you are. We take care of things we value. We take care of things we love. You are loved and you are deeply valued to the point where God decided, I will die for you. That's how much you are valued, how valuable you are to your heavenly father. So father, again, thank you for this demonstration. I mean, you, there were a lot of things accomplished in that demonstration, but for this morning and what we're talking about, Father, we, we see how serious you are. We see how, just how much you love us. And we celebrate and we believe that we'll live too because the same spirit that raised you from death to life is the spirit that lives in us. That same exact spirit lives in us. And our heavenly father has promised that that spirit would raise us to life when we die so that we can be with you forever. Father, we thank you for all this. We thank you for your word. We thank you for King David. As a messed up guy as he was, he just, he never ran away from you. He always ran back towards you. Father, that we would be able to do the same that we would be able to be Christ-like, but when we blow it, we don't run from you. We turn and run towards you because your arms are open and welcoming always. Thank you, Father, for everything that you're doing in the lives of this church so that we can be a light on a hill for this city and, that it, and this light would draw people to Zion. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray. Amen.